an astrophysicist and a rabbi walk into a bar mitzvah. Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, whenever you happen to be listening to uh, to this uh, Temple Israel podcast. Um, I'm Rabbi Sim Glazer, and my, my guest today is Professor Larry Rudnick. Professor Rudnick, Larry, is, uh, uh, is, a, is a professor emeritus of astrophysics at the University of Minnesota, uh, where he studies large-scale structures in the universe using radio, x-ray, and optical telescopes. Um, he, he lectures and talks in all sorts of different places, including Temple Israel, and he and I have shared the stage together uh, uh, several times. Uh, Larry and uh, Temple Past President Muffy, his wife, are long standing temple members at Temple Israel. They raised two daughters there. Um, and this conversation uh, is, is part of Larry's ongoing efforts to uh, personally understand the meaning of life. And I would add to that that almost every conversation I have uh, is for me to try to understand and in certain cases explain to people uh, what, what is the meaning of life, what is the meaning of our existence, why are we here, and all sorts of other very profound questions. So welcome, Larry. Thank you, and I'm glad that the meaning of life is your business and not, not mine, because I find it a very challenging question. Although uh, you, you continue to strive to find the answer. Sure, that's, mm. that's the meaning of life. Ah, <laughs> ah. so uh, I guess I'll put out the question, uh, Larry, that you and I have talked about uh, s- uh, several times. The whole notion of uh, of the meaning of, of human life, um, put differently, I suppose, are we special, or are we uh, an a- an accident of evolution? Is the way I sort of phrase it. Are we just, you know, did we just evolve? Are we just creatures, um, or is there something special? Is there something divine about the human character and our relationship with the cosmos? Yeah, it's a, it sounds like a great question, and it it, it of course. As a scientist, um, there there's not much meaning behind that question. And so as a human, though, it, it's clearly a compelling question. And so I actually brought with me today a couple of um, uh, pieces of text that are written uh, from the science perspective, but recognize that that question is there and, and ask it, shall, shall I go ahead and... Yeah, what sure. Are, yeah. yeah, let's let's put those out there for the listeners. So the first one is um, from the poet uh, Diane Ackerman. She's one of my favorites. She's absolutely you know lovely stuff. And um, the few lines that I'm going to read are from a poem called "We Are Listening." And what she's doing is she's talking about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is something the scientific community has put um, a lot of effort in, and it is one of intellectual curiosity. But beyond that, it it gets to the question you're asking. It's like, really, are we special? And I don't know what happens when we discover extraterrestrial life. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit. But I just want to capture some of the imagery that Ackerman did. Mm -hmm. So she starts out describing the telescopes that are looking And um, I just love her language. So she says, as our metal eyes awake to absolute night, where whispers fly from the beginning of time, we cup our ears to the heavens. We are listening. We are listening for a sound beyond us, beyond sound, with our scurrying minds and our lidless will and our lank floppy bodies and our galloping yens and our deep cosmic loneliness and our starboard hearts where love careens, we are listening. The small bipeds with the giant dreams. Mm. And and it's that last Mm. line that really Mm. gets to me. Like if, if we're really just this little accidental blip at the end of things, we are dreaming pretty big that we're going mm-hmm. out there and, and seeing if there are others like us in the universe. 
You know, the, the, the line in the poem that sticks out to me is, uh, I don't know if I got, got it right, I don't have a, the poem in front of me, but uh, uh, listening for a sound beyond sound. Right. You know, because and that I, when she says that, I would wonder as a scientist, you know, uh, it's either a sound or it ain't, right? I mean, is there a sound beyond the sound? And if so, is that something that's not material or not physical in some sense? Well, yeah, I, I don't know what she actually meant by it. There's lots of ways that I could take that, and, and they're interesting. So um, sound is a vibration in mm -hmm. a medium such as air that vibrates um, our eardrums or vibrates some instrument that we build to detect the sound, and then we convert it, whether it's in our bodies or through an instrument into an electronic signal, and we say we've detected it. But there's lots of sound that we can't hear. Mm -hmm. um, there's ultrasound, which dogs can hear, for example, and you could picture sound waves even going higher than that. There is, um, I actually forget the word for infrasound, I guess is the word. I'm forgetting that um, our frequencies are too low for us to understand and um, or to, to perceive, but elephants perceive them, for example, mm. over, and, and whales. Um, so there is sound beyond sound. There are vibrations that are beyond what we can pick up. But I think that she was getting a little more metaphorical there. We, we're, we're listening because that's the words that we use to describe radio telescopes, but it's not clear what we're looking for. Mm. We're, we're looking for something that's going to tell us we're not mm -hmm. alone in the universe. Well, that was, you know, that was going to be my next question. Do you really, you know, we talk about the the interest in in ETs, you know, in, in extraterrestrials, and and it's been a, a fantasy of human beings forever, from you know, from early science to Steven Spielberg, you know, you know, everybody right. who's just wants to. And I and I think you kind of answered the question just now. We wanna we wanna somehow we're interested in somehow finding out we're not alone um right. and, and why is there that human need you know i would ask you know why why isn't it enough to have other human beings surrounding us why do we want to find out if there's something other than what we know to be earthly creatures well as a scientist i can answer that um because we want to understand the origins of life we want to understand the limitations of life mm -hmm. um we want to know the conditions under which life formed and as long as all we have is this one example here on Earth, it is a matter of intellectual curiosity to know, do we understand those laws correctly? Or if we were to go look at a second circumstance, we might understand things differently. So that's the intellectual answer. But it doesn't tell you why mm -hmm. we're so interested in this question, mm -hmm. why it goes beyond just that simple thing. Mm -hmm. So you're the rabbi, you tell us. Uh, you know, when you when you were just talking about uh, d different kinds of sound that we can't understand it, or we can't actually hear, but other animals can, mm -hmm. um, that always piques an interest in, in in me. You know, it's similar with colors, right? I mean, there's there's yep. in, infrared, and, and you mentioned that also. Um, you know, the mystics, and I've been I've been doing a bit of dabbling in Kabbalah for the last fifteen years or so. So, you know, I, what I what I've read and not always understood is that the Kabbalah seems to be interested in dimensions other than those which are perceived. You know, third mm -hmm. and fourth and even fifth dimensions of what they call reality. Um, and I don't I don't know what that is, but I I know that one of the interests that the Kabbalists have. Um, is that is that they're convinced maybe maybe like people that are looking for extraterrestrials or or you know otherworldly uh, creatures or or uh, forces um, they're interested in knowing if there's something beyond what we experience with our physical bodies in in this world and that's where they start moving into the the um, uh, the area of the divine you know um, where they start they start um, predicting or or, or uh, ideating, I, mean, I don't know what the right word is, you know, um, mm -hmm. where they start philosophizing about the possibility of a greater being. And I say greater only in the sense of a, of a being that isn't, isn't entirely manifest in our day-to-day -day life. Sure. But they and, say and, that that's our problem, not the problem of the divine. It's our inability to, to seek. Well, astronomers are extremely sensitive to these limitations because um, in almost every kind of parameter that you could think of, 
we know that we are limited. So we just talked about being limited in terms of sound, mm -hmm. um, that if the pitch is too high or too low, we can't detect it. And then you just brought up light. Yes, if the frequency is too high, it's ultraviolet or X-ray or gamma rays. And if it's too low, we call it um, uh, infrared or radio or millimeter waves or things like that. And so what we do is we recognize there are things that are way beyond our senses mm -hmm. and we build instruments to detect them. If things are too fast, we can't detect them. If they're too slow, we can't see them changing. If they're too faint, we can't detect them with our eyes. So we are extremely sensitive to these limitations. But one big limitation really is the things that we can't even conceive of, the, mm -hmm. the, the unknown unknowns, the, the things, that, the questions that we don't even know to ask. And we do talk about different dimensions that we can't directly interact with or, or things like that um, mm -hmm. also. So that's, that's sort of an ongoing quest for us is to go beyond the, um, the physical limitations that we have, but also beyond the conceptual limitations that we have and try to ask, is there more than mm -hmm. we've been able to even ask questions about? Hmm. You know, I think that's. I think there's an interesting Kabbalistic analog in that. I, I don't have this since this is an audio presentation. I can't really post anything to look at. But anybody who's ever read anything or seen anything about Kabbalah sees those uh, the spherotic system, the spherot mm -hmm. um, that yeah. emanate from the divine, and become increasingly understandable or knowable or conceivable uh, by by humanity. So by the time they get down to our earthly world. These things are garbed, is, which is the language they use, are garbed in ways that human beings can understand it. Like the idea of compassion is nothing unless somebody is being compassionate. Mm -hmm. But to, you, there's no way you could, you could um, uh, uh, identify compassion outside of a person being compassionate being compassionate. So it, uh, the reason I thought of this is when you talk about prisms of light, some people think of the divine light from from God or whatever you want to call the the source of all being as being an infinite and un, uh, unseeable light, but very much like a prism, that white or, or non-visible light mm -hmm. is broken into elements that are in fact uh, uh, perceivable by human beings. And similarly, God's infinite power cannot be conceived. Now I'm talking straight Kabbalah, cannot be conceived by human beings. There's no way it could because it's too powerful and it's too all-encompassing, but broken down into component parts that exist within the human structure and within human life, we start seeing, we get hints as to what that divine energy might yeah. be. I, I think that that is, it's sort of, uh, uh, there's a world out there, a universe out there and our intersection with that universe is very small. Mm -hmm. And so you and I have talked, for example, about the, the idealistic world of uh, Plato's cave, mm -hmm. where there are ideal forms that exist out in the universe. And all we see is the shadows that are cast by the fire in the cave and you see the shadows on the wall. And that's the best we can do. Um, we are, again, you know, as scientists, very sensitive. Again, it's another way of looking at the limitations. And I think one one sort of image that, of that, that that sticks in my mind is um, we have, if you think about our history of the study of the um, structure and evolution of the universe, the idea of a Big Bang or something, you know, that goes back 60 years. And that's about it. Maybe you can trace the roots of it back a hundred years if you really kind of push things. Eighteen twenty-six or something like. That. I mean, nineteen twenty. Yeah, in the in the early nineteen hundreds, where people were starting to play with this idea of perhaps the beginning to the universe. Um, but the um, if you take that time, which is you know a hundred years, and ask how long has the universe been around? Mm. Now the universe has been around for. 14 close to billion. 14 billion years. So that's nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet, from that very slice, that tiny slice of time, a couple hundred years, a few lifetimes, we've been able to reconstruct a history that goes back 14 billion years. Mm. So it's a constant quest for us to go beyond our limitations. And that's a conceptual one. We've really just got you know, this very short time slice, and we're trying to put together the history of the Earth, the history mm -hmm. of the universe, the yeah. best way beyond. 
Well, you know, when you, um, you of course, give me wide open uh, <laughs> uh, when you talk about the Big Bang, because that's a, that's a, also a favorite topic. And we've talked about, you and I have talked about this before, that that uh, at least Lurianic Kabbalah that was formulated in the early part of the uh, uh, 16th century in the north of Israel, um, you know, pro- uh, promoted this I- idea that that there was in fact a singularity that they call the divine that they can't that they can't describe and it was infinitesimally small but contained all the potential for the universe and that is what exploded and so this is this is close to what 400 years earlier before somebody came up with the big bang idea the rabbis were talking about a similar idea um, but they were talking about it in a spiritual sense, you know, that mm-hmm. that that it would explode and all the the, the sparks would fly, as, as they say. Right. And right. within each of the sparks that would go out and become the material universe, within each of them, there was a divine element from that initial singularity. And I, I don't mean to lecture on this, but but, you know, um, what's interesting about about that is because they then go on to suggest that the goal of human endeavor and um, promise and, um, uh, you know, what we're supposed to be doing is to try to find the divine in the universe. And they say to reconstitute it, which is kind of ridiculous because that's never going to happen, but they give a name to that, right? They call it tikkun olam. Mm -hmm. And, And here... In in in, uh, in Jewish circles, we talk about tikkun olam as as just repairing a broken world, meaning our physical world, and the rabbis are behind that. They're down with that, but mm-hmm. they're saying that the the concept goes back billions of years. But that that kind of speaks to why it is we have this conversation in 2020 after a particularly hideous year. And and there's a lot of rebuilding to be to be done. But there's we have a purpose in that. That, that we have come to that point. So this is one of the places that I, as a scientist, start mm-hmm. having, a, having a problem mm-hmm. um, with this because humans are recently emerged and the Kabbalistic picture, yes, the sparks, and then they didn't know exactly how much time to associate it with it. Now we know how much time to associate mm-hmm. it with it. So the time associated with even the existence of humans in our current form is maybe a couple hundred thousand years. Mm-hmm. And again, that's about one twenty thousandth of the age of the earth mm-hmm. or one seventy thousandth of the age of the universe. Mm-hmm. So to drag us back to our human special, it's like, okay, so if we're special, why didn't God just create us right away? Why, why just why have this whole universe of 14 billion mm-hmm. years and in the last 200,000 the special things come out mm-hmm. you know that's an interesting question I've, I've heard that also who's the um, I'm blanking on the guy who's the planetarium dude in in New York um, yeah <laughs> so I'm, I'm Having a mental block, they'll have to cut. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's, he's fond of taking like a calendar, saying there's a calendar right. year. And that calendar year represents the, the, the length of time the universe has been in existence. And right. we're what, like uh, the 24th hour of the last day of the week of that, something like that, you know? Oh, yeah, we're, we're like a millisecond on that last right, day. Right, right. So, yeah. and, and, you know, when he says that and when you just say that, I always come <laughs> up with, I always think that the, the same question. Why... And you might be able to turn this right on its head, but why is it important for scientists to diminish the human element by saying we are so small with relation? What's what's the purpose behind that? What does that prove? Yeah, I I don't think that there's an intent to diminish behind it. And in fact, if anything, it 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 sort of echoes the last part of Ackerman's poem, you know, the. Um, uh, the bipeds uh, with the giant mm-hmm. dreams, and I, mm-hmm. I forget her her exact words. The right. the small bipeds with the giant yes. dreams. So it's like um, you know, I am nothing, and at the same time, I one of these little nothings can comprehend the universe, and that's just amazing. And mm-hmm. even though we've only been at this for two hundred thousand years in existence and only a hundred years in terms of our modern understanding of the science thing, we've been able to comprehend this, this story. So I mm-hmm. don't think it, I don't think it diminishes it. I think it, it puts it in perspective. On the, on the other hand, if we were to look at things that are 
fundamental to the nature of the universe, nuclear fusion that makes um, stars shine, gravity that causes stars to even form in the first place and galaxies and things like that. Those are enduring things that have lasted for billions of years. Mm -hmm. and, and we recognize them as essential to the functioning of the universe. If we're just this blip in the last millisecond of the calendar year, we're not essential to the functioning of the universe. That's, oh, oh you're grimacing. I yeah. am grimacing. Nobody can see me. Well, grimacing, only one word I, in the last, your last sentence bothered me. The word just. Yes, okay. we are the most recent thing, a, a blip in the in the time. But saying just, again, lead, leads me to think that the, the scientific uh, view of human beings is because of the fact that we're so recent, we're such newbies to the universe, we don't have special merit. And that, that, um, that formula doesn't work for me somehow. Yeah, I mean, but it's not it's not a bias against humans. So, for example, if um, you know if something were to uh, change on the Earth, so let me mm -hmm. think about a, a recent change. So the climate. I, I want to, yeah, but I want to keep away from uh, human caused things. But we, we certainly can get to them if you want. Mm -hmm. um, but suppose that we had a, um, a an earthquake that um, was much bigger than any that we had before, a volcano that was much bigger than, than ever existed before. And I were to look at, again, the whole history of the solar system, billions of years, and I look at that one event, would I attach special significance to that one event and say, if I'm building a picture of the universe, I better build that in right from the beginning as a fundamental thing? And the answer is no. I'd probably just say that that's some accidental thing that happened mm -hmm. recently. And yes, it's interesting to study, but it's not going to teach me about the universe overall. Hmm. And, and it's that same way. So I would be dismissive of it in that way. Mm -hmm. And that that's the same class that I'm putting humans in. We're just this recent blip. Scientifically, they're not a key part. We're not a key part of the story. Of course, the main difference between, let's say, a tsunami or an earthquake and two human beings talking about it right now are that the tsunami and the earthquake have no uh, spiritual or intellectual interest in the origins of all this, but you and I do. Sure. I mean, you and I are sitting here talking about it, and that's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. just in, in, not that, you know, I'm... No. Well, I mean, here's what's more amazing, e even to me from, from the science side. The, <clears throat> the way that you're able to talk to me um, and, and speak at all is because there are structures that are built up in your body. Forget mm -hmm. about the, the soul or the mind or anything like that. Physical ability for us to have this conversation is based on a set of molecules which have come together, which you have gathered um, over the last 60 some years mm -hmm. by eating and mm -hmm. processing food. Mm -hmm. And those atoms have been around since the mm -hmm. beginning of time for 14 right. billion years. Right. So over the last 60 years, you've kind of gathered them. And now these crazy little atoms mm -hmm. are, are now doing this stuff. It's mm -hmm. like, how those mm -hmm. atoms come to do this conversation? And that to me is an amazing piece. It is, and you can turn you know turn that right on its head in a way. I mean, you you weren't being negative about it. I don't think you were just being very <laughs> practical. We, it's come to this, and but the the words that popped into my head uh, uh, in my head are are the words of the great sage Joni Mitchell, you know, <laughs> who said in the song Woodstock, "We are stardust, we are golden," yeah. meaning we come from the Big Bang. Right. And it's true, our atoms. There's nothing that we eat or that is in our body right now that didn't come from that initial that initial explosion, which again leads the Kabbalists to say, we have the divine within us, but so do evil people, and so do grizzly bears, and so do tsunamis. You know, they, they all have that in them. Um, right. There's a, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is completely germane, but there's a, there's a tradition in Judaism that one is supposed to uh, uh, establish sort of an equilibrium in terms of one's own self uh, esteem versus one's recognition that one is in fact just a collection of atoms, right? And we talk about how, and maybe they used to actually do this in the shtetl back in the old days, I don't know, um, I've never done it, but they say that in one pocket we should carry dust and ashes, mm -hmm. and in the other pocket we should carry a little, a little 
slip of paper with the name of God in Hebrew printed on it. Right. So, so as to assert that we know that we are divine and holy, but at the same time, we're create, we're just, we're just, as you said, a series of atoms that happened to assemble the way they did through our DNA and the food we've eaten and et cetera. But the important thing about that is to recognize that we're all and nothing um, simultaneously, that we descend from the divine and we have God in us, yes, but we are also an animal. Yeah, and finding that dual, and we're an animal, and we're just dust, and mm -hmm. we we have a history that goes back billions of years where we had nothing to do with it, and now in in this current form, there is something very special. That that kind of um, dual view of of who we are, I, I think, is at the heart of the dilemma. Because again, as a scientist, I have to be dismissive of something that's just sort of accidentally come up so recently. Mm -hmm. But yet, as a human, um, I you know it it feels different. And the fact that we're here and we're even asking these questions. Um, can I um, uh, go and give the uh, give the other little text that I was uh, interested in? So the second piece that I that I brought for this conversation is by um, uh, Ray Bradbury, very well known uh, science fiction writer. And science fiction, of course, is is loved by many scientists because mm. because they honor the science by incorporating it into their work. Um, but then they get creative in ways that we often wish we were we were creative. And this was from an essay that um, uh, the Ray, Ray Bradbury uh, wrote. And it gets to this point of of people that are interested in science still wondering sort of all of our science seems to dismiss the importance of humans, mm -hmm. and yet we, we're not willing to let go. So here's what Bradbury says. The universe is full of matter and force. Yet in all that force, how small the decimal points of intelligence, basically us. Dreadful, apish brutes on occasion, following occasion. And yet I would not see our candle blown out in the wind. It is a small thing, this dear gift of life, handed us mysteriously out of immensity. I would not have that gift expire. I know you're just reading from what he, yeah. he wrote there, but but does he say why? Does he does he go into why it is he thinks that 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 the candle that these apish brutes have uh, <laughs> why it's so important? You know, I I don't I don't think so. I'll read you the next little part that he writes there, but it's it's still just. Mm -hmm. acknowledging that, well, so here's the rest of what he says. Crossing the wilderness centuries ago, men carried in covered cow's horns the coals of the previous night's fires to start new fires on the nights ahead. Thus, we carry ourselves in the universal wilderness and blow upon the coals and kindle new lives and move on yet once more. So, it's, it's almost like a, a, a divine sort of drivenness or something. It's like, look, the, look at we've, what we've done to get where we are. Mm. We, ca we can't just let that go to waste. We have to keep going. We have to be searching. We have to figure it out. Yeah, I love I love it. I love it. And, you know, and it reminds me of something you and I were talking about the other day. I don't know if, if, if we wanted to do it for now, but I have the that uh, that prayer about the stars. I have it in front of me. Could I read that? Because sure, it sort yeah. of links. I think it kind of links up with this. Just a note before we continue with the poem, but we'd like you to know, as our listeners, that we would love to hear your comments and questions, which can be directed to tmoss at templeisrael.com. And in this case in particular, Rabbi Glazer and Dr. Rudnick will be having a second episode, so we would love comments and questions that inspire that next episode. And with that, we will return to the recitation of another poem, A Prayer, this time. And this, by the way, is something that we rabbis, you know, regularly trot out at shivas and funerals and and memorial services when we're when we want to honor the memory of somebody who is no longer physically with us, but very much seems to be a part of our reality even mm -hmm. after they've they've died. And so we we read this uh, this poem that goes: There are stars up above. So far away, we only see their light long, long after the star itself is gone. And so it is with people that we loved. 
Their memories keep shining ever brightly, though their time with us is done. But the stars that light up the darkest night, these are the star, these are the lights that guide us. As we live our days, these are the ways we remember. And what's particularly, I think, lovely about that is, first of all, it's obviously an, an analogy, right? It's a metaphor. It's talking about sure. planets that, that, as you as an astrophysicist know very well, but I always find this just fascinating, that you actually can look up into the sky. I believe this is still, this is what they told me when I was a kid. <laughs> right. You could see a little light up there that might be a planet that no longer actually exists, but its light has taken that long to get to us. That's correct, right? That, that's yeah. the, the extent yeah. of my scientific knowledge. I, I'd say that's true of stars. Um, more than the planets, but yeah, the thought is okay, there. Sorry, right, right the that's fine. So the point is that they then, they say, you know, the, it, it, similarly, it's like that with people we have known because they're no longer with us in a physical way. They've died, their bodies have expired, they're in the ground, but they're not gone because there's something about them that still lingers and still leads us on a path. And this kind of has a little to do with, I think, what you and I were talking about the other day with... Um, DNA and 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 how we chart the course that we take, you know, what is it based on? It's based on who our parents were, what our experiences were. Mm -hmm. But I but I what I what I take this to mean, and I've said this before reciting the Kaddish many a time, is that, and I believe this, I believe this, that that eternity involves both the eternity of of the fleshly world and the eternity of souls which is not a scientifically proven concept, mm -hmm. I understand. But eternity would ostensibly also um, uh, encapsulate where the souls are now. They're with the divine. They've gone somewhere extra extraterrestrially. Mm -hmm. And they are now, now in a different part of eternity. Um, and what I like to, I don't know if people find this comforting, but I like to say that when we say this prayer of the Kaddish, it un unlocks the door between the two parts of eternity and allows us to, on some level, be with those whom we have lost and loved and lost, mm -hmm. even though we're no longer with them physically. But it is kind of a, um, you know, it's, I guess it's more of a hope, a hopeful yeah. thought rather than anything provable. Well, but it's a, it's not so, not so much a question of proving it but recognizing the fact that there is more than is just encapsulated in the atoms. So let me let me just make a, a couple of comments on the, on the poem that you read. So whenever we read it in services, I want to jump up and, and, and go, yes, yes, I understand that there are stars that have disappeared and they're really there. I could even tell you how many there are, and mm -hmm. whatever, because it, it, it just rings true for me. And it, I remember a, when you a, did that one night. It was no. really, really inappropriate. <laughs> really. I, when, when I do that, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll have to figure out something to do. It's time to talk well, to Muffy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Get the hook. Um, but, you know, we could, we could take your body and, and put it in a box. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll put breathing holes in and stuff like that. But when I put put the body in the box and get another box and go out and dig a bunch of soil out in my backyard and put that into the box and we'll fill it up until it weighs about the same thing. And there's really no difference between one box and the other box that in terms of the chemical makeup, in terms of the physical nature of it and stuff like that, they're both collections of atoms. They both have had a very similar history, except for the last few decades. They, they really, they were indistinguishable. And yet at this moment, in the one box, there's something that's really different than what's in the other box. And if you were to ask me as a scientist to explain that difference, I can't. I might tell you there's electric currents and some chemical reactions going on in one box, but I can mock that up. I can do something in the other box to make that stuff happen. So what is it that's different between those two boxes? And I think as a scientist, I have to say, I don't know. I don't have words to describe what's different. And so when you talk about when, when you go for Kabbalistic views of that, or you go for this um, beautiful poetry that acknowledges living on in the memory and stuff like that, those are all attempts to say what's different in one box as opposed to the other. Mm. You know, um, it, it, I, you know, when I, one of the things that I've, I've talked about in, in, in teaching Kabbalah, which, which is something that I don't 
put too much stock in, but I, I, I recognize why the, the Kabbalists talked about it. So they talk about this, um, this uh, blueprint for the universe, you know, that was in the shape of a human being. And, mm-hmm. and obviously to a, a scientist, this would probably be among those things you would, a real eye rollers, you know, that, right. that the divine in order to create the universe actually took a blueprint that's called in Hebrew, Adam Kadmon or, or primordial man and, and created the universe through that structure. And, and, and the either compelling or disgusting idea of that is, is that, depending on your point of view, is that the world is created for us. In other words, the create or or better put put it put it I'll put it better. The world was created with the eventual evolution of the human species in mind. That the the conversation right. we're happening is also part of the unfolding of the universe, and and that that is critical to the divine plan that began fourteen billion years ago, or maybe longer. Yeah, and when we take that idea, and we don't have to take it too literally that um, uh, that it was in the current form that we have now, I have to ask about what about all the other life on Earth? Mm-hmm. So let alone life on other planets, which we are looking for, but that would even raise the stakes more. But for life on Earth, um, again, we're just very recent. Why not? Why not say the same thing about chimps? Mm-hmm. You know, are were were they the design? Mm-hmm. You know, was it was the universe created so chimps mm-hmm. could evolve, or mm-hmm. whales, or dolphins, or elephants, mm-hmm. um, or amoeba, or or whatever? And you know, as thinking beings, it's certainly natural for us to elevate ourselves to something special. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just because we can think and do it. I mean, if you could get into the brain of an elephant. And get it to articulate thoughts. Would it think mm-hmm. it's special? Well, certainly, mm-hmm. um, the alpha members of any tribe of animals, pack of animals, certainly think they're special in some mm-hmm. way. So, just because we can articulate the thought, I, it's not clear whether that makes us special. Right. I don't. I don't know that it's just because we can articulate it that makes. There's another. There are a number of other things too. I think, and one of them. Uh, and you could dispute this as a scientist. Also, is the is the idea that that. Um, uh, aside from humans, there are no creatures that we know that make volitional choice in their life. They 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 kind of run. They do what their DNA tells them to. And some people say the same things are true about human beings, but they don't ever sit down and and go, hmm, is this right or is this wrong? And this goes to another discussion. I think we'll probably have to have down the line as to whether there's actually any such thing as value in you know our values in the universe. But but religious sensibilities have said it is the very fact that human beings make choices between doing the right thing or not doing the right thing that 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 links us with the divine being that chose to have life become anything yeah so that's that links us that's a cute story uh (laughs) glad you like glad you liked it i don't i think that it comes out of an ignorance of on hum, on all of our parts on what's going on in the brains of animals you've got a dog mm-hmm. the dog makes decisions sometimes whether to be bad or not bad mostly bad yes yeah but, but the question is is that not volitional i'm going to go do this thing that's attractive or not you've conditioned the dog by various rewards and punishments and stuff mm-hmm. but how is that different than us mm-hmm. being conditioned by our education mm-hmm. or anything else. Yeah, well, th- this may be a backwards way of responding to that, <laughs> but but when I when I when I ponder the, the the question, I think I think back to to the to the nascent state of the of the Jewish people, and and the th- and the thousands of years at least biblically that went on before law was given, and then mm-hmm. there's this moment where law, you know, where God says Israel will be my people, you know, and the and the Israelites say, oh, what do we got to do to do that? And God says, you just have to pay attention to this set of of admonishments or commandments mm-hmm. or rules. And the Israelites say, yeah, okay, we'll do that. But they make a they, they make a choice as to whether they're going to seek justice, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, you know, be kind to the stranger, house the homeless. These are all things that people can do, might do, but don't necessarily do. And the right. very fact that we that we posit the existence of a God-given commandment system tells me 
that somebody up there, if you believe that the divine gave us that, recognizes that there is a creature on earth who can follow rules to the betterment of their species and, and for that matter, the welfare of the entire planet. Yeah, and I think that were we able to, dev to um, design better tests, mm -hmm. that we would find lots of analogous behavior in animals. I think we don't know how to do that yet. So, for example, there's this wonderful series of experiments um, on fairness. So you could argue in exactly the same way that we have, that one of our guiding principles is that we should be fair, that we should be treated fairly, other people should be treated fairly, and yet animals have now been demonstrated to have that innate sense of fairness. And mm -hmm. the experiments, um, mm -hmm. for people that aren't familiar with it, are you give two chimps yeah, the banana. Uh, the, yeah or a cucumber or whatever yeah one reward is better than another and a chimp will deny themselves mm -hmm. the reward of a treat if the mm -hmm. one next to him is getting a better treat so they've got the sense right. of fairness so and if so, he sees the chimp next to him being sad that he didn't get he'll take part of his banana off yeah, and give it and, to him and, out of out of pity out of yeah Right. So really, where are you going to draw the line? The fact that you can't yet figure out an experiment to look at what we would call a moral choice doesn't mean mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It means we haven't had figured out a way yet to mm -hmm. extract that kind of information about animals. Hmm. Well, maybe. <laughs> OK, well, yeah, I, I, well, don't know how to, I don't know how to come back to that. Um, when, when they take over, they'll tell us. Yeah, I suppose. Or or when we're visited by this, these extraterrestrials that we've been seeking and we find out that they are more morally and ethically and mentally, intellectually evolved than we are. And they right. look at us and they say, you warlike creatures who destroyed your planet with these noxious gases and the way you treat one another. Um, and that as soon as a vaccine is available for this disease you all have, uh, you're uh, you're already lining up and saying me first, me first, me first. You know, it's it, it, we're gonna we're gonna approach that creature, and we're not gonna we're not gonna have much to say for ourselves. You know, <laughs> right. oops, would you please take over the uh, uh, the world because you obviously know how to do it better. We're about to destroy it. Yeah, and then there's and then we're gonna have to explain to them the people that are in denial about everything. Yeah, the, the other half of the people, right? You know, who are saying climate change isn't real and the vaccine's not real and stuff like that. I don't know. Or the pandemic isn't real. These people are yeah. literally in the the emergency rooms, gasping for air, saying, "No, don't talk to me about this uh, about this disease. You know, just save my life. Give me a magic pill." I mean, so I, I think that what that what that tells us is that we are all blind in some ways, mm -hmm. and to it is easy to see the blindness in others you know and the kinds of things we we're just talking about now and it gets us very upset because it actually has effects on us mm -hmm. um and we can see the blindness in others we have a lot of difficulty in seeing the blindness in ourselves mm. and Good i think point. that goes back to ackerman's words about the sound beyond sound and would we even recognize it when we encounter whatever it is that's out there Will we recognize the signals? Will, will we know that mm -hmm. we have encountered it? And um, mm. I mean, we, we, you know, we design tests to say if there were other beings out there that were like us, then they would do X, Y, Z. But we actually have no idea what they would do. And so mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I don't think this is necessarily a very profound point. But as a scientist, it's a major dilemma of saying, do we even know what we're looking for? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you and know, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and it's it's this it's reading science fiction mm -hmm. and it's engaging in this kind of conversation that opens up the creative side of our minds to to get out of just sort of the linear thinking that we that we're always in because mm -hmm. of all the technology we've learned and all the laws of physics and stuff. And we know that that is insufficient for the big questions that we'd really like to answer. And so yeah. we have to go elsewhere to look for it. Right. You know, speaking of questions and answers, just uh, last night, um, in between things, my my granddaughter and I FaceTime together. She's four years old mm -hmm. um, and very smart. 
Um, I mean, I guess everybody's grandchild is smart <laughs> and beautiful and wonderful, but this this one is very. But yours really and, is. Mine really <laughs> is, and she's and she's very verbal, and so she says to me. Um, and clearly she wanted to do the FaceTime just to ask her rabbi grandfather, you know, she said she had heard about, learned about Adam and Eve, how they were the first two people on the planet. And of course you can guess her question. How could, where did they come from if they didn't have a mommy or a daddy? And she put it right, right out there to me. And I found myself in a, in a, in a strange position because all of a sudden I was talking to my (laughs) biological granddaughter and I wanted to tell her something that I really believed to be true. I didn't want to, to sermonize. I didn't want to talk right. about something I'm not sure of, but boy, doesn't it sound pretty when I say it. Because mm-hmm. this kid's too smart for that. She's going to remember, she remembers everything anybody ever says to her. Right. So I, you know, so I, I tried to explain God, you know, and, and the fact that that people could come out of nothing and become something. They, you can get something in Hebrew, it's called yesh from ayin. You can get something mm-hmm. from nothing. And she pushed me on that. She said, well, I don't understand. How can there be, you know, and I, and I said, well, Margaret, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there. And I gave her the example of, can you temp- show me the wind? And she goes, well, look at the tree outside. It's blowing. I said, that's not the wind. That's a tree blowing because of the force of the wind, but you can't show me the wind. And, and she accepted that and, on some level. And then I said, show me love. And she, and she said, well, you know, you, I love you, Grandpa, and you love me. And I said, well, yeah, but you didn't show it to me. You didn't show me the actual thing itself. Mm-hmm. Show me justice. You know, I mean, there are all these things that exist that we don't have the capacity to actually, you know, to, to, to visualize. Um, although we can explain it, and the only way we can explain it is by virtue of how we react within those forces. Right. Well, you're back to your Sephiroth. They're the intersections that we can make right. with with underlying truths or underlying planes of existence that we can't directly experience. And there's um, pieces of that kind of philosophy that are embedded in what we call quantum mechanics that we really don't understand that we as, as beings interact with things that we can only kind of write down mathematically and can't describe them physically, but in that interaction, they are physicalized and they become real. Mm. And then we can write down the laws by which they behave, but they're not the essential truth. There is something beyond that. And Mm. it's only through that interaction that we can actually, you know, connect with them and, and, and try to understand them. Mm. You know, it's, it's funny, just as you said that I flashed on something about my granddaughter's father my son, who is mm-hmm. a university professor, who started out in the world of math and then kind of got to where he wanted to go. And then he moved into uh, poetics. He was just interested in poetry. And that's what he, and he just published a book, but, and it's about poetry, but it's about the mechanics of the beats of poetry, because mm-hmm. that's the kind of way he is. So he's taking something that on the one hand, you read the poem and it means something to you on a completely who cares about the the rhythms and the beats it just speaks to you on some other plane but he's interested in in saying you know uh, pointing to the evolution of where that poem came from that style of beat the metrics the iambic pentameter all this you know uh, stuff and and so it's it's striking to me that he is teaching about poetry, but that's but his specialty is about the sort of it's like talking about a person and rather than describing what kind of person they are and what you know what kind of dreams and hopes and things they've done and 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 what they stand for in values, you say they are a a mass of atoms, yeah, right. corpuscles, brain, you know, uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. And again, I mean, the point is that this is this dual this dual nature to reality mm-hmm. that what's in one box was following all the same rules as what was in the box of just dirt. And mm-hmm. yet there was more to it. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I can't use simply my physical language to describe mm-hmm. what you are mm-hmm. it, that, you know, that's, it's insufficient to the task. And so we have to look to these other ways. So what he's doing is he is showing you some of the mechanics, but that's not the whole story of the poem. It's just mm-hmm. a piece, it's a piece of the poem. Right, right. And it does, I think it does go back to the, the discussion that we kind of started out with as, as to, as to, are we special? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have guess we the gotten answer- any, 
Well, I don't know if we've, <laughs> I don't know if we've answered it. I, I I still feel like the fact that one of the one of the contents of the box can have a, a discussion about this, right. and care about the possibility that there's someone in the other box who who he or she should care about, even if it's just dirt. But they, you know, the fact that that we've we've evolved to the point where we can have this conversation, where we can have these kind of feelings, where we can create things out of nothingness, you know, like like artists do. Yeah, no, no, and making connections and seeing we could use this in this way, or what if we did that. And um, there's wonderful books on this. Um, there's a book called Lateral Thinking by a man named De Bono who just points out how trapped we are in, in the things that we know and the way that we approach things. And so mm -hmm. I think part of the you know attraction of these conversations for me is that I'm forced to go out of that box and, and think about things in other ways. Mm. Well, I'm going to um, I'm going to make a suggestion here. We only touched on the first of of several topics that you and I wanted to embrace. Right. And if you're willing, I would love to do a part two, um, uh, moving from the specialness or non-special uh, sure. entities that we are or not, um, and and to talk about the search. Uh, for 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 the hidden and the mysterious, which we mm -hmm. talked about, um, and also the whole notion of whether um, whether there are values uh, in science and can you prove the existence of of a value and go into some of the Einstein stuff you talked about. Right. But mm -hmm. that I think is going to have to wait for another day because we um, we filled right. our time. We yeah. filled our time. But I thank I thank uh, my guest uh, uh, Professor Rudnick for for being with me. It's always so much fun to talk to you. It's always a thrill. I can't believe an hour just went by. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether people are walking, jogging, riding a bike, or uh, rowing downstream somewhere when they're listening to this, but or fast forwarding. Or fast forwarding and find out if they actually get to something interesting. Um, but uh, but we appreciate our, our listeners and hope that. Um, uh, we can continue. If you're willing, sure. I'm, I'm willing. It sounds great. Thank you, Larry. Sei gesund. Sei gesund. Take care. Yes, there will be a second episode of The Rabbi and the Physicist. And so if you have any questions or comments you'd like to direct to them, please write them to tmoss, T-M-O-S-S, at templeisrael.com, and I will make sure that they reach their destination. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. And please subscribe and whatever form you listen to podcasts to listen to all future episodes of Temple Talks.